I am back. Did you miss me? Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. Thank you very much to Alan Sanders and to Chris Burns for filling in on Monday and Tuesday. It is nice to have some good guest hosts um, who I can rely on who are actually listenable. I I don't understand there are certain hosts out there who make sure they have the worst possible people on uh, so that you tune out and and you miss them dramatically. I would much rather have a group of people who aren't going to kill my ratings while I'm gone. So thank you to both of them. Um, And, and, and my family and I, we had a great, great time. Uh, The kids, I should have taken a day off. They had a day off as well. I didn't realize it. So I'm back at work and they're still able to, to rest. Well, I had to come back because the Democrats debated and Things let let's just say things aren't going well right now for Democrats. And uh, Chris Hayes from MSNBC kind of sums up where things are as uh, Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar are suddenly being looked at by Democrats. Why? Well, let's see if I can reroute my audio here. I'm a little rusty. Here we go. I thought basically the, the, the dynamics that you spoke about were, were pretty evident. I mean, it has been three people at the top here. I think there's a sort of interesting theory of the case that revolves around Pete Buttigieg and also I think to a certain extent Amy Klomashar, which is the idea that there is some vacuum and demand for a kind of non-Biden alternative. A non-Biden alternative who is not Elizabeth Warren. There actually is some concern after this debate and and what the data is showing about Elizabeth Warren. Uh, One of the reasons that there is concern about Elizabeth Warren is that she just can't answer simple questions straight. Senator Warren, to be clear, Senator Sanders acknowledges he's going to raise taxes on the middle class to pay for Medicare for all. You've endorsed his plan. Should you acknowledge it too? So the way I see this, it is about what kinds of costs middle class families are going to face. So let me be clear on this. Costs will go up for the wealthy. They will go up for big corporations and for middle class families. They will go down. I will not sign a bill into law that does not lower costs for middle class families. But that wasn't the question, was it? It it was a question of taxes. And she's not willing to answer the question on taxes. In fact, Pete Buttigieg uh, really went to town on all of this last night. He had a very strong performance. The Republicans out there looking at Buttigieg thought he won the debate. I don't think the American people are wrong when they say that what they want is a choice. And the choice of Medicare for all who want it, which is affordable for everyone because we make sure that the subsidies are in place, allows you to get that health care. It's just better than Medicare for all, whether you want it or not. And I don't understand why you believe the only way to deliver affordable coverage to everybody is to obliterate private plans, kicking 150 million Americans off of their insurance in four short years when we could achieve that same big, bold goal. And once again, we have a president we're competing to be president for the day after Trump. Our country will be horrifyingly polarized, even more than now. After everything we've been through, after everything we are about to go through, this country will be even more divided. Why unnecessarily divide this country over health care when there's a better thank, way to deliver coverage Mayor, for all? Senator- 
that played well with a lot of Republicans. It did not play well with a lot of Democrats, interestingly, but does it even matter? And the reason I ask that is because of this performance uh, with Elizabeth Warren. And as I say, Buttigieg, even before tonight, already in contention in Iowa. That is a lot, Steve, because when you put it the other way, he's seven points out of the lead in Iowa. Yep. A uh, huge number for him. And, uh, you know, you were the first to say he had a good outing. <laughs> he had a good outing. And, and I, I think it's more the dynamic that Chris Hayes and others are, are raising that we'll be talking about. If Elizabeth Warren is the nominee, might she look to someone who sort of speaks to um, that, that, that centrist angst, you know, that, that desire to have someone that sort of animates and excites the base of the party, but also speaks um, and not that Elizabeth Warren isn't doing well across the country. She has regional support, but there, there is, I, I pick up some angst in Democratic circles mm -hmm. that she might alienate some moderates. And I want to, mm -hmm. uh, uh, before we do that, I have to talk about Beto O'Rourke. Oh, yeah. Because we okay. have this. You and I have, have Yeah. <laughs> we will get to Beto O'Rourke ourselves. So Elizabeth Warren is alienating moderates. And, and you heard there at the beginning, uh, Steve Kornacki, who's kind of their data guy at MSNBC, talking about he, he's actually starting to go up in Iowa. He's getting traction in Iowa in ways um, people didn't know that he could get. And he he is definitely, definitely more moderate than Elizabeth Warren. But would Elizabeth Warren do that? You know, one of the things that uh, some Democrats criticize Hillary Clinton for from 2016 is she went with Tim Kaine, Tim Kaine being a, a perceived to be moderate middle of the road Democrat from Virginia. And there are a lot of Democrats out there who say she couldn't excite the base and mobilize the base because she went with a guy like Tim Kaine, who, who, who signaled to voters they didn't want in the coalition. Would Elizabeth Warren do something like that if she were the nominee? I, I'm not sure. But this whole thing last night, I, I'm playing the reaction first intentionally. Because I, I want you to hear what people thought of the debate so that you can then listen. Because I'm assuming most of you did not want to stay and watch a three-hour debate. By the way, some of the topics that did not come up in the debate you should know about. Uh, some of the topics that did not come up, uh, they did not talk about China in the debate. Didn't do it. And they did not talk about uh, Beto O'Rourke wanting to tax churches. Uh, but still, uh, there was concern. Here's John King from CNN. Oh, without a doubt, I agree that the other candidates on that stage clearly thought it was in their best interest to go after Elizabeth Warren, to go after her on Medicare for All, to go after her economic views, to go after her more broadly and the idea that they think, especially from the moderates, too far left, will take the country in a way that you can't win here in Ohio and across the Midwest. Um, the vice president was almost an afterthought, Joe Biden, in this debate, which is striking in that the early debates, people viewed him as the front runner. The last thing I'll say. And I, I wonder if that benefits Joe Biden, because the Democrats are suddenly getting very defensive about him. We'll get to Hunter Biden in a little while. Hunter Biden uh, did, an ad, did an interview with ABC News, and I am told, and, and the media is reporting that Team Biden did not coordinate it. Uh, the the Biden team did not actually coordinate the interview uh, that Hunter Biden did. It did not come across well for his dad. I assume that he had very little to do with it. it the whole thing is just, last night it was a weird debate, and then you had the, the Joe Biden kind of floundering around. Let me play this montage of Joe Biden that gives you kind of a sense of the debate performance he had last night. It was not good. He is definitely showing his age on stage. What I think is important is we focus on why it's so important to remove this man from office. 
On the 17th, look, the fact that George Washington worried on the first time he spoke after being elected president, that what we had to worry about is foreign interference in our election. Hundreds and thousands of innocent people between there and the, and the Iraqi border. And lastly, and I apologize for going out, but lastly, I'm the only one that got, got moved the, uh, to make sure that we could not have a magazine that had more than 10 rounds in it. Because guess what? Why in God's name should someone who's clipping coupons in the stock market make, in fact, when you register it, the likelihood of it being used diminishes exponentially. The fact is, everybody's right about the fact that the fourth industrial revolution is costing jobs. It is. The fact is also corporate greed. If they're going back and not investing in their employees, the way to deal with those guns and those AR-15s and assault weapons that are on the street, are not on the street, that people own, <laughs> excuse me, in terms of foreign policy. And the fact of the matter is, I've never seen a time, and I've spent thousands of hours in the Situation Room, I've spent many hours on the ground in those very places. What is happening in Iraq is going to be, I mean, excuse me, in Afghanistan, as who are you saying is being vague? Well, the senator said she's being vague on the issue of, actually both of them being vague on the issue of, uh, of the uh, uh, Medicare for all. No, look, look, here's the deal. It's, it's called, come on. Yeah, poor. Can we just pause for a moment here on Joe Biden? Joe Biden, any Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden, all three of them are older than Donald Trump. Any of them, if they were elected, would be the oldest president ever. And Warren is young compared to Sanders and Biden. Warren looks younger than them. She's actually 71 or would be 71 uh, if she were sworn in. She's she's old. Bernie Sanders had a heart attack last week. And everybody continues to prop them up. There's, There's just something not right here. And by the way, Elizabeth, um, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is going to endorse Bernie Sanders. So the, the, the woke progressive millennial is going to endorse the old white guy as opposed to the woman or the gay dude. She's going to endorse the, the rich white old guy. Yeah. Okay, so much for wokeness. The whole thing is just, it was a weird debate. It really was. Um, A lot of people, reporters, oh, they got into substance. They they didn't really get into substance. They all, by and large, agree. They they quibbled around the edges. One of the very few people who stood out on that stage was Tulsi Gabbard. She has no shot at getting the Democratic nomination uh, because she makes too much sense. The Democrats really hate her. They hate her in part because she came after Kamala Harris so aggressively, who, by the way, was a nothing burger on stage last night. She was very, very weird. Amy Klobuchar kind of had a rebound, uh, but there's Joe Biden. Biden is still at most polls the front runner for the Democratic Party. And yet, well, here's Van Jones. Saw Buttigieg trying to get there. You saw Klobuchar trying to get there. We need somebody to, have, to really have this debate the right way. You've got to have two real heavyweights on both sides. Look, you know, Biden didn't do as badly as he has done. I still feel the air is coming out of Biden. I just don't see it. And so there is an opportunity. I thought, Pete, I thought tonight. The air is coming out. And it's true. 
the air is coming out of Joe Biden's campaign. And I have I have continue to think that Joe Biden has the inside edge on being the nominee. And the reason I think he has the inside edge on being the nominee is because of the concern about Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Elizabeth Warren really is to the left. And even the people in Massachusetts, and this is something I, I think reporters don't understand. The people in Massachusetts don't like Elizabeth Warren. She doesn't poll well in her home state. Now, that's not to say she wouldn't win it. She would absolutely win it if she were the Democratic nominee. But the Democrats have a history of nominating people from Massachusetts who don't play well elsewhere, and in particular, nominees from Massachusetts who don't really even play well in Massachusetts, which is kind of weird. Dukakis and John Kerry, both of them, did not poll well in Massachusetts. They did against Republicans, but they didn't against other Democrats. And same with Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren actually polls very well against Republicans. Republicans in Massachusetts. She just doesn't poll well against other Democrats in Massachusetts. And yet she could be the nominee. And, and I've long thought that it was going to be Joe Biden's, but Joe Biden really is starting to look old. Um, maybe Hillary really is going to get back in. I, I don't actually think she will. Maybe Michelle Obama will get in. There are a lot of Democrats who would love to see her get in. I don't know about that. And then there's poor old Kamala Harris, who really keeps taking these aggressive lines, including now that the president needs to be booted off social media, particularly he needs to be banned from Twitter, among other things. She's such a advocate of the First Amendment. Senator Warren, I just want to say that I was surprised to hear that you did not agree with me that on this subject of what should be the rules around corporate responsibility for these big tech companies, when I called on Twitter to suspend Donald Trump's uh, account, that you did not agree. And I would, I would urge you to join me because here we have Donald Trump, who has 65 million Twitter followers and is using that platform as the President of the United States to openly intimidate witnesses, to threaten witnesses, to obstruct justice. And he and his account should be taken down. We saw in El Paso that that shooter in his manifesto was informed by how Donald Trump uses that platform. And this is a matter of corporate responsibility. Twitter should be held accountable and shut down that site. It is a matter of safety and corporate accountability. Yeah, she's really into the First Amendment, isn't she? By the way, uh, notice no mention of James Hodgkinson, who really was was fueled by left-wing hate online. Uh, she wants to focus on the shooter in Texas, but not th- them. But my goodness, by the way, speaking of shooters, Beto O'Rourke is doubling down on this gun confiscation stuff. Let me give you this audio uh, from Beto O'Rourke in the debate. By the way, you do need to understand the Democrats are now trying to ignore O'Rourke. Uh, he is polling at one or two percent. He's not even qualified for the next debate. The next debate is going to be in Atlanta in November. That's right. In Atlanta in November, the next Democratic debate will be. And uh, the Democrats thus far do not have Beto O'Rourke qualified on the debate stage. Amy Klobuchar herself is, is also not qualified to be on the debate. Uh, Tom Steyer is not qualified to be on the debate stage. There are a few others. So you may actually have a smaller pool of people. It'll be an MSNBC debate. Uh, but yeah, Beto, uh, the Democrats would prefer to ignore him now. He's putting them in a very difficult position on gun confiscation. Just to follow up, your expectations aside, uh, your website says you will find people who don't uh, give up their weapons. That doesn't take those weapons off the street. So to be clear, exactly how are you going to take away weapons from people who do not want to give them up and you don't know where they are? If someone does not turn in an AR-15 or an AK-47, one of these weapons of war, or, or brings it out in public and, and brandishes it in an attempt to intimidate, as we saw when we were at Kent State uh, recently, then that weapon will be taken from them. 
Uh, if they persist, there will be other consequences from law enforcement. But the expectation is that Americans will follow the law. I believe in this country. I believe in my fellow Americans. I believe that they will do the right Thank thing. You. Okay, so if Americans, Beto, this is Anderson should have followed up with him. If you believe that Americans will follow the law, and notice he caught himself on that. If you believe Americans will follow the law, then the law says don't kill people. So why do we need to confiscate people's guns? Notice he had to correct himself because that led to that follow-up and he wanted to avoid it. The whole thing is very bizarre with Beto O'Rourke. He's also, by the way, signaling that he will never run for office again if he loses this. So in other words, Beto O'Rourke is done for after this is over. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. So I've got to just fill you in on something. You you may hear it coming down the microphone. I assume not. I, I assume I can be disciplined here, but... So I'm fat. Let's just let's just acknowledge uh, I, I have I have gotten off the exercise train and and gotten on the bad eating train and and I've been trying to do better, and part of that is I have been going to a CrossFit gym again. Now, you know, in in 2016, I nearly died. Uh, I had a bunch of blood clots in my lungs, uh, and as all bad stories begin, it began at a CrossFit gym in 2015, and I just thought I was too old and couldn't keep up. I was completely out of breath. I mean, constantly out of breath, and I thought, my goodness, I'm only 40 years old, and I'm out of breath. Uh, well, it turns out I actually wasn't that I was old. It was because I had blood clots in my lungs, and, and going to CrossFit exacerbated the situation and sent more there. Now, ultimately wound up in an ICU for more than a week. And, and finally, I, after a year or so later, was uh, released from the doctor to begin exercise, and it took me a while to get back up to steam. And so I've started going again. Y'all, yesterday was deadlift day, and my legs are so sore right now. My butt is sore. My back is sore. My shoulders are sore. So if you hear all sorts of squeaking and whatnot, it's me standing up and having to rearrange the microphone as I stand up because sitting in this chair for three hours is going to kill me today. And I hate to do the show standing up, particularly because I'm live streaming the show on Facebook. And so at some point, I'm actually wearing my dark shirt so you won't be able to see my gut sticking out. (laughs) I'm sore. I'm sore. And I'm sweating, constantly sweating. It's just, I, and I realize it's doing me good. I was going to a buddy's gym and, and we were just working out together and I have, I burn more calories in a day of CrossFit than I did in a week. Um, I'm just, I'm, I, I am exhausted and I am constantly sore. And now I'm starting to get to the point where I'm hungry all the time. And the guy I'm working out with keeps telling me, you got to be careful or you're going to start eating a bunch of junk food. And I'm trying not to eat junk food, but my goodness, I made chocolate chip cookies this weekend i tried a new recipe i actually conjured up the recipe myself looking at a bunch everybody else is doing it these cooking magazines you get a bunch of recipes together and they decide which one's best and i just said you know what i'm gonna take i like this i like this i like this i'm gonna put them together my goodness did i come up with a good chocolate chip cookie recipe i I may have to send it out in fact I, i will send it out later this week to people who subscribe to the recipe list but nonetheless if you hear if you hear all sorts of squeaking and, and weird sounds coming down the line, it's me. I'm standing up. My legs are so sore. So now I'm sure you wanted to know that. <laughs> we need to get back to like, enough about me. Let's go back to the debate stage. Uh, poor old Beto doubled down on wanting to confiscate guns. He's on TV this morning saying he actually is going to send the police to your house 
to confiscate your guns. And the other Democrats are trying to make him go away. They're like, please, Beto, shut up. You're making us look bad. But notice they're not really denouncing him very much. Some say it's because they don't think he counts, but others because they agree with him. We'll get into this audio when we come back. Yes, and you should text recipe to 33777 this week because I got to experiment this weekend. It was the nice thing about having having several days off, which I haven't had several days off uh, in a while and just got to cook. Uh, tried a new pizza dough recipe. I've got this thing called a rock box. You can, if you follow me on Instagram at EW Erickson, uh, it's a, it's an outdoor pizza oven. It gets up to 950 degrees. You can use wood so you can make a real authentic Neapolitan pizza. And I got to experiment with dough. It, it was quite good. Uh, okay. Um, we got to go to more Beto. Uh, Beto, Beto, Beto. Uh, Beto is having issues, and uh, a buddy of mine said it, it, it almost looks like uh, someone whose life is spiraling, and it kind of is. I think he realizes he's done, uh, but uh, so Beto decided that he was going to double down on the gun confiscation stuff, and he did, uh, that he's going to take people's guns away. Well, then they called him out on CNN over this ridiculousness. I, I don't want to play the whole clip here because it's rather lengthy, uh, but I do want to listen, want you to listen to some of this exchange on CNN this morning as they brought Beto O'Rourke on to talk about what he said last night about the guns. Just let, let me replay the gun clip real quick just so you get the sense of, of where Beto was going with this stuff. Uh, Anderson Cooper, of course, talking to Beto O'Rourke. Uh, this is what he said. Just to follow up, your expectations aside, uh, your website says you will find people who don't uh, give up their weapons. That doesn't take those weapons off the street. So to be clear, exactly how are you going to take away weapons from people who do not want to give them up and you don't know where they are? If someone does not turn in an AR-15 or an AK-47, one of these weapons of war, or, or brings out in public and, and brandishes it in an attempt to intimidate, as we saw when we were at Kent State uh, recently, then that weapon will be taken from them. Uh, if they persist, there will be other consequences from law enforcement. But the expectation is that Americans will follow the law. I believe in this country. I believe in my fellow Americans. I believe that they will do the right Thank thing. You. Yeah, that's what he says. We'll listen to him on CNN. O'Rourke. Good morning, Congressman. Good morning, Allison. Great to have you. So let's let's um, dive into that that exchange in particular, because it sounded like what Mayor Buttigieg was saying was that your plan was not fleshed out enough. Can you flesh it out more? How do you plan to get assault weapons away from people who don't want to give them up? It's pretty simple. Um, as with any law in this country, we would expect our fellow Americans to follow the law. It's one of those things that distinguishes us from so much of the rest of the world. We're and is, so shouldn't they then be expected to follow the law of not using guns to kill people? I, I mean, this is this is the contradiction in his plan. A nation of laws and no person is above the law, no matter how much they may disagree with a given law. We also have the precedent of Australia, which took the bold step of having a mandatory buyback of these AR-15s and AK-47s. As you know, weapons that were designed for war to kill people. Australia does not have a Second Amendment, you should know. People on a battlefield that have no use for hunting or self-defense in your home, but can kill people at a terrifying rate and terrifying numbers yeah. if left in the hands of civilians. And we've seen that 
in El Paso, in Dayton, in Odessa, sure. throughout this country. So, I mean, so this is the right thing to do, and I, and I fully expect my fellow Americans to follow the law. You expect mass shooters to follow the law? Our fellow Americans will follow the law. Yes. Congressman, um, and mass shooters don't fall by definition. Million... The mass shooters in Parkland, in El Paso, I could go on for 10 minutes. They don't follow the law by definition. There are so many instances where the proposals that we've made, whether it is a universal background <laughs> check or a red flag law or ending the sale of weapons of war this or buying through? those that are out there back would have stopped many of the shootings that we see in a country that loses 40,000 people a year to gun violence. Would That's it stop every single shooting? Thing. No, but that should be no excuse for not taking action now while we have the opportunity. Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> Thank you to Allison Camerata, by the way. Thank you to Allison Camerata for, for pointing that out and the look of just ab- absolute incredulity on her face. I mean, you should, I, I wish you, I had a, a live stream TV show here where you could see her. She is literally dumbfounded in her in her facial expression over Beto. We need to do the right thing. Yeah. And we also shouldn't be limited by the politics <laughs> She's or got her head the conventional got, political she's wisdom rapidly. or the polling she's ready or the to consultant come in for the class kill. or the no, NRA I, I understood. on, on I mean, finally taking that, decisive action. Understood. And I think that what, what uh, Mayor Buttigieg was saying, yeah, this it's uh, obviously think high, aim, you know, shoot for something aspirational, but it doesn't make sense that people are going to hand over their assault weapons if they're mass shooters, if they want to do harm to people, they're not going to follow the law. So then what's your plan? <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know that you make any law or stop making any law because you fear that some people will not follow the law in, in any part of, of American life. And so, yes, if somebody has a, an assault weapon, a, <laughs> a weapon of face war, and just... poses a danger to people in their lives, or people heavily. in their community, or people in our lives, then, then we're going to stop them. And, Meaning um, what? And, You're going to go to their house. Just, just tell us how it works. You're going to go to some, if somebody doesn't voluntarily hand over their assault weapon, you're going to go to their house, and then what? If, if we pass this law, um, then I expect our fellow Americans to, to follow the law. And, and this is not speculation. We've seen other countries uh, Okay, she's not having like- it. I'm not having it. I, 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 listen, he also went on MSNBC over this thing. They're not having it. The guy looks like a total idiot. Anderson, so let me ask you, let's say I have an AR-15. I bought it legally five years ago. I'm a law-abiding citizen. Back as president of the United States, I say no. Uh, you give me other incentives, I say no. I bought this legally. I'm keeping this. I live on a ranch. I need it for protection. What would you do then? First of all, I, I wouldn't concede the the point on following the law. I, I would, you know, don't know you well, Joe, but I would. I know you well enough to expect you. To, to follow the law, even if it's a law that you disagree with. I think it's one of the so, things that so distinguishes for, us so, 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 as so a country. We're, we're a country is, of laws. Let, okay, but let, let's just assume that there's a rancher in Texas that doesn't, that says, I'm not going to do this because this is an unjust law and it's unconstitutional. What's the next step? I think that's what we need to concede because there will be people that don't turn their guns back in. What's the next step for the, the federal government there? Yeah, I, I think just as in any law that is not followed, 
uh, or flagrant, flagrantly abused, there, there have to be consequences uh, or, or else there is no respect for, for the law. So, you know, in that case, uh, I think there would be a, a visit by law enforcement to recover that firearm and to make sure that it is purchased, bought back so that it cannot be potentially used against somebody else. Wow. So uh, th- we really will do gun confiscation in this country. Uh, the, the Allison Camerata thing, though, is is just absolutely crazy uh, because, I mean, she essentially points out that the mass shooters are not going to comply with the law. Mass shooters are not going to do it. And I, I again, I, I can't, I've got to describe for you the way Allison Camerata is looking at Beto O'Rourke while talking, um, you, you do need to understand that that his pause when she asks a question, let me be fair to O'Rourke in this regard, uh, when she asked the question, or even when Joe Scarborough was asking the question, there was a delay, a couple second delay between Beto O'Rourke and them. That's why there's a pause. It's not like there's long silence because he's thinking. There is long silence because there is a delay, uh, and that's not his fault. But when he starts talking, Allison Camerata, she cocks her head, she squints her eyes you can tell that she's sighing she's she's blinking when he says crazy things she, she's shaking her head now he can't see her doing this but she is it, it just it, it boggles the mind that he's actually doing this well they didn't ask better work last night about taxing churches I, I was somewhat disappointed in that regard with the cnn debate in that they didn't uh, do that. They they didn't talk about the um, the taxation of churches. That's the other issue Beto O'Rourke has raised. And I would note that in the past, Democrats have been much more vocal in pushing back on Beto O'Rourke on the gun confiscation issue than they have been on that particular issue. Uh, they have not really engaged against Beto O'Rourke on going after churches and religious nonprofits. Most of the Democrats actually agree with him, even if they don't want to say it in public, uh, that they're not going to come after him. But, but he had his moment. Joe Biden also in the debate. Uh, went on the gun control rant, uh, really a gift that keeps on giving for the NRA here. I'm the only one on this stage who has taken on the NRA and beat them, and beat them twice. We were able to get assault weapons off the, off the streets and not be able to be sold for 10 years. Recent studies show that mass violence went down when that occurred. The way to deal with those guns and those AR-15s and assault weapons that are on the street, are not on the street, that people own, is to do what we do with the National Firearms Act as it related to machine guns. You must register that weapon. You must register it. When you register it, the likelihood of it being used diminishes exponentially. I'm the only one that got, uh, got moved the, uh, to make sure that we could not have a magazine that had more than 10 rounds in it. I've done this. I know how to get it done. If you really want to get it done, go after the gun manufacturers and take back the exemption they have of not being able to be sued. Okay, wait just a moment, please. So we've got Beto O'Rourke who wants to confiscate guns. And now we've got Joe Biden saying we need to have a gun registry. Well, you got to have a gun registry in order to round up the, to know who has the guns. Really interesting dynamic there. Uh, a, a position for Biden to take. You you see where this is heading. 
uh, for the Democrats, and uh, they're they're showing just how extreme they are on issues. In fact, they're very mad at Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard uh, is the congresswoman from Hawaii who has no shot at being the Democratic nominee. She has no chance of being the Democratic nominee. She plays too well with Republicans, some Republicans. Not all, I'm not a big fan of hers myself. Uh, but uh, she had this to say last night, and the Democrats today are going bonkers. Congresswoman Gabbard, your response. Uh, this is often one of the most difficult decisions that a woman will ever have to make, and it's unfortunate to see how in this country it has for so long been used as a divisive political weapon. Uh, I agree with Hillary Clinton on one thing, disagree with her on many others, but when she said abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, I think she's correct. We see how the consequences of laws that you're referring to can often lead to a dangerous place, as we've seen them as they're passed in other countries where a woman who uh, has a miscarriage past that six weeks could be imprisoned because abortion would be illegal at that point. Uh, I do, however, think that there should be some restrictions in place. I support codifying Roe v. Wade while making sure that during the third trimester abortion is not an option unless the life or severe health consequences of a woman. She's taking a position that Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Bill Clinton have all taken in the past, and she's being eaten alive today by Democrats for being an extremist. From their vantage point, an extremist on abortion. Meanwhile, here's Cory Booker, an unmarried man with no children. Well, first of all, let's be clear about this law, these laws we see from Alabama to Ohio. They're not just attacks on one of the most sacrosanct ideals in our country, liberty, the ability to control your own body. But they're particularly another example of people trying to punish, trying to penalize, trying to criminalize poverty. Because this is disproportionately affecting low-income women in this country, people in rural areas in this country. It is an assault on the most fundamental ideal that human beings should control their own body. And so the way, as President of the United States, I'm going to deal with this is, first of all, elevating it like we have with other national crises to a White House-level position. And I will create the Office of Reproductive Freedom uh, and Reproductive Rights in the, in the White House and make sure that we begin to fight back on a systematic attempt that's gone on for decades to undermine Roe v. Wade. I will fight to codify it, and I will also make sure that we fight as this country to repeal the Hyde Amendment so that we are leading the planet Earth in defending the global you, assault Senator. we see on women right now. Uh, global assault on women is more like an assault on the unborn children. He wants a White House abortion office. A White House abortion office that would go after states like Georgia for daring to protect the lives of the unborn. That is the extremist position, and yet in the Democratic Party, that's mainstream. And Tulsi Gabbard, who takes a position shared by Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama, is somehow crazy. But that's okay. You can believe Cory Booker. Cory Booker is qualified. And I want to say one last thing, and I feel qualified to say this as the vegan on the stage. The vegan on the stage. The vegan on the stage. Poor old... Cory Booker has no shot at this moment. It, it does make me wonder, why are he and Beto O'Rourke still running? Uh, where is their money coming from? It, it, now, Booker, has his campaign is starting to signal that they're almost out of money. And as they, sign, as they run out of money, they're going to have a hard time. Well, Joe Biden is going to have a hard time as well because of the Hunter Biden stuff. It, it is starting to mount on him. It is starting to get press traction that there's a problem. 
And it is starting in large part because Hunter Biden decided to sit down for a TV interview and it really didn't go all that well. We need to discuss this. It is Eric Erickson here. If you would like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We will get to impeachment here in a little while, uh, but we need to talk about Hunter Biden. He didn't have a great moment on stage last night when talking about his son, Hunter you announced that if you're president, no one in your family or associated with you will be involved in any foreign businesses. My question is, if it's not okay for a president's family to be involved in foreign businesses, why was it okay for your son when you were vice president? Vice President Biden? Look, uh, my son did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. I carried out the policy of the United States government in rooting out corruption in, in Ukraine. And that's what we should be focusing on. And what I wanted to make a point about, and my, my son's statement speaks for itself. He spoke about it today. My son's statement speaks for itself. What I think is important is we focus on why it's so important to remove this man from office. On the 17th, look, the fact that George Washington worried on the first time he spoke after being elected president, that what we had to worry about is foreign interference in our elections. It was the greatest threat to America. This president on three occasions, three occasions, has invited foreign governments and heads of government to get engaged in trying to alter our elections. The fact is that it is outrageous. Rudy Giuliani, the president and his thugs have already proven that they in fact are flat lying. What we have to do now is focus on Donald Trump. He doesn't want me to be the candidate. He's going after me because he knows if I get if I get the nomination, I will beat him like a drum. That's a good line for Joe Biden there at the end, but he's still having a real hard time dealing with what Hunter Biden actually did, coming to terms with it. Uh, here's the Politico's Mark Caputo. If you actually look into the facts, you really wonder how much he has learned from this incident. For instance, Hunter Biden essentially says, well, look, when I took this job, which paid him as much as $50,000 a month with the Ukrainian national natural gas company, and he had no natural gas experience, and he had no Ukrainian knowledge or didn't speak Ukrainian or Russian, he nevertheless got this job, and he said, I you know, essentially didn't think that these problems would happen. Well, in 2015, the New York Times first reported on this and said, this is a problem for Hunter Biden's dad, then the vice president, because he's in Ukraine trying to crack down on corruption. So at the time, or contemporaneous essentially, there were questions raised about the ethics of this, and Hunter Biden didn't resign. He did keep his job. And before hmm. Joe Biden got in the race, he did realize this was going to be a problem. And incidentally, today, uh, Trump's campaign, through its war room on its Twitter account, pointed to an NBC Meet the Press interview with Tom Brokaw in 2008 with Joe Biden, where Tom Brokaw did a very good job pointing out to Joe Biden, hey, you were shepherding across a rather unpopular credit card bill that helped credit card companies, and just so happened a credit card company hired your son to be a lobbyist, that son being Hunter Biden. Those are going to be questions, as you see, that are going to continue to come out. So while he might say, oh, I had poor judgment in the past and I didn't really think this stuff was going to happen, he should know, he should have known, and they know now that his father is a longtime elected and public official, and all of this stuff comes out, comes out especially when you run for president. Yes, it does. Uh, another voice of reason in the Democratic Party, Ed Rendell, on this Biden stuff. Ed Rendell, the former governor of Pennsylvania, uh, deeply influential within the circle of Democratic donors who like Joe Biden. But I think Joe should acknowledge 
that it probably didn't have a good appearance for his son to be working for a company that, and getting paid significant dollars at the same time he was over there making decisions about the Ukraine. Yes, um, it is bad. And poor Joe, he's in a situation uh, where his son wanted to make money. His son, kind of a loser son. I mean, the reality is Hunter Biden was long overshadowed by his older brother, Bo, who died of a brain tumor. Bo Biden got elected, I think, attorney general in Delaware. He was popular. He was well-liked. Uh, he was responsible. And, and Hunter kind of was in the shadows. And in the shadows, kind of had a complete meltdown. Uh, wound up dating his brother's uh, widow. Wound up ruining his marriage, uh, spending his money on crack cocaine and strippers, uh, smoked from the crack pipe, uh, had to go to rehab. Kind of a pitiful soul. And and Joe Biden's daughter as well, who's not in the in the light right now, was at one point arrested for drug problem. I believe selling drugs, I think, was, was the, the situation. Um, you know, debate whether to say this or not, but um, for all the Trump kids' faults, they, they haven't gone there. Um, there there's just, and given the, the history there with Joe Biden's first wife dying horribly uh, with a child, I, this is a messed up family. Now, they are. Uh, we should feel some sympathy for them, but that doesn't excuse trading on dad's name to get rich, which is a problem. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, throughout the Southeast, spreading nationwide and around the world on Facebook Live. Uh, coming to you from Athens, well, actually from Macon, but broadcast over to my flagship in Athens and out to all the stations, wherever you're listening. I'm glad to be back from vacation. Uh, I actually enjoyed vacation, but I worked during vacation, but it's nice to be back. The phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We will get back to the Democratic debate, I am sure, but this is happening right now. You need to hear this. Uh, in addition to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez coming out for Bernie Sanders, uh, Ilhan Omar from Minnesota is coming out. It, it, uh, what's her name? Tlaib. Rashida Tlaib is also uh, the gang of three AOC and, and, and her little cult. They're all coming out for Bernie Sanders. Listen to this one. I am so proud to endorse Senator Bernie Sanders for president. Senator Bernie Sanders is the only candidate that has built a movement and continues to build a movement that transcends gender, ethnicity, religion, and we know that in order to take on Trump, we're going to need a unifier, someone who understands what the fight looks like, and someone who is ready to defeat him. I'm one of the people that was inspired by the movement that the senator has built. There was an America that I dreamed about. There is an America that most people um, believe in. It is an ideal. It's not reality yet. And he started the work of organizing for that America. And that has inspired me to get involved and run myself to help others also organize for that America. One of the amazing things I think about the senator is that he understands we have to find solutions to our greatest problems. We don't wait for what the poll numbers are on uh, proposing a particular solution. The senator is the only candidate that is proposing a complete cancellation of student debt. 
The senator is the only candidate that is proposing to provide universal school meals. The senator is the only candidate that wants to make sure that we end our endless wars and will fight for human rights and hold everyone accountable regardless of whether they are an ally or a foe. The senator is someone who understands that our movement isn't just for few, it's for everyone. The senator is the only candidate that isn't about leaning a particular way, but being true to yourself and fighting for what you believe regardless of what the obstacles are. This is not just the fight for our lives, this is the fight for our democracy, this is the fight for a better future, one that we can all be proud of. There you have it, Ilhan Omar endorsing Bernie Sanders. So he's got Rashida Tlaib, he's got uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, he's got Ilhan Omar. Uh, the far-left caucus of the Democratic Party rallying now to Bernie Sanders. And they want to push him above Elizabeth Warren. That's That's really the most fascinating thing here, when you think about it, is... They want Bernie Sanders, the the in their language, the cis hetero white guy. They want him, not Elizabeth Warren. Um, it, it just absolutely bizarre. Um, meanwhile, that they have asked uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez for her deep thoughts on Bernie Sanders. And now, deep thoughts by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Capitalism has not always existed in the world. It will not always exist in the world. When this country started, we were not a capitalist nation. That was Deep Thoughts by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> yes, she she's going to support Bernie Sanders because he's not a capitalist, he's a socialist. Uh, she's throwing her way. You know, interestingly, Bernie Sanders did come out the other day and said that Elizabeth Warren uh, has said in, in her bones she's a capitalist and that he's not, that that he wants nothing to do with capitalism. And is, so he is he's going out there and he is attacking uh, Warren. He is attacking uh, capitalism. He's picking up these far lefts. Meanwhile, now we need to transition here. Um, let me focus on Georgia for just a minute, because, you know, in, in Georgia is uh, regardless of where you may be listening in the nation right now. Georgia is actually shaping to be very fascinating in 2020 because it's going to have two Senate seats up for election. Um, there's the David Perdue seat where the incumbent David Perdue is running against a ragtag group of Democratic uh, politicians of various progressive stripes. And then you have the Johnny Isaacson seat. The Johnny Isaacson seat is an open seat. Isaacson is signaling that at the end of the year, he is going to step aside, giving the governor in the state time to um, pick someone uh, to replace him. And the Democrats are, are they're upset with Matt Lieberman in that race. Matt Lieberman is running uh, as a hyper-progressive candidate to fill Isaacson's seat, and he's disrupting Democrat plans. 
Lieberman is Joe Lieberman's son, the former Connecticut senator. He is to the left of his father on a host of issues. He was a um, a private school headmaster. He's been a progressive activist in, in Georgia. He's been active in helping the homeless community in Georgia. All, all, by all accounts, a nice guy, but highly hyper-progressive. And the Democrats wanted to essentially pick one person to run in this seat against whoever uh, whoever Brian Kemp picks. And Matt Lieberman has decided that that's not good. It's not something he wants. He thinks it's bad for the party. So he's jumped into this race for Isaacson's seat. He's got an ad out uh, making fun of Brian Kemp's gun ad with Jake, if you remember that ad, uh, where the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, as a cam- candidate, uh, sat next to Jake, his daughter's boyfriend, and uh, had a gun in his lap. Activists hated it. They thought he was uh, pointing his gun at poor Jake. He wasn't. Uh, it's just a camera angle. So Matt Lieberman has a, his own version of this ad, and he's trying to run as a very progressive candidate. Likewise, in the David Perdue race, you have Ted Terry, the mayor of Clarkson, running as very progressive, and he's being matched uh, by Teresa Tomlinson. Teresa Tomlinson in Georgia is the, she's the Elizabeth Warren uh, opportunist in Georgia. She was a Republican. She became a Democrat. She is running as a very progressive candidate. She's actually running claiming that she's more progressive than the hyper-progressive Ted Terry who grew a resistance beard and went on Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. She says she's more progressive than him. Really, she's an opportunist. She will say or do anything. Uh, She would knife her mother in the back if it meant she'd get ahead in this race. Well, people are really smelling the opportunist vibe against her, and she's not raising money. She had raised $500,000. Now she's raising $400,000. Um, in the last quarter, which isn't a good fundraising total for a woman who said she would need to raise $10 million minimum to beat David Perdue. So in comes John Ossoff. John Ossoff, uh, you'll recall that John Ossoff mobilized a nationwide base of left-wing support to try to run for the Senate in, or run for the House Representatives in 2017. The special election after Tom Price was made Secretary of Health and Human Services for Donald Trump. He barely lost the race and lost it to Karen Handel. Now, he, having won nothing ever, he now wants to run for the Senate against David Perdue and is trying to mobilize the progressive base again. There's a problem here for the Democrats, and it is a problem they're facing nationwide. It's a problem they're facing on the debate stage at the Democratic debate. They're too white. That's right. You heard me. They're too white. They've got to find a way to mobilize black voters. So if you're listening somewhere around the country, I'm in Macon, Georgia. And Stacey Abrams, when she ran in Georgia, making national headlines, claimed that the reason she was able to do so well against Brian Kemp was because she was a progressive who was unapologetic about being a progressive, and she brought in new voters, she registered new people, and we know from the data that's not true. And the Democrats behind the scenes know it's not true. Stacey Abrams was able to boost registration in Georgia by about a million people. That was unheard of in Georgia. The jump in voter registration numbers from 2014 to 2016 was not that significant. It was only about 20,000 people. 
But from 2016 to 2018, there were about a million new people who registered to vote, 980,000 people. And that was largely because of the Abrams campaign. But how did that translate at the polls? It only got Abrams 40,000 more votes than Hillary Clinton in 2016. So of the million people registered, only 40,000 more turned out. But why? Usually the number goes down in an off year. So Abrams was able to hold the Democratic base and bring in 40,000 more people. To some degree, it was her progressivism, but the reality is it had a lot to do with running against Donald Trump. Uh, this was a year Democrats wanted to protest against Donald Trump, but there was something else as well. It was that she was black. And in a day and age when we like to talk about ourselves as a colorblind society, the reality is Stacey Abrams being black mattered. When you look in rural Georgia where she lost, she did lose, but there was a big spike in African-American turnout. In the metro Atlanta area, the black voter turnout was significant. It was sustained, and it helped Stacey Abrams. She came very close to getting into a runoff with Brian Kemp. But it still wasn't enough. And now the Democrats have a bunch of white people running for the Senate. Not only do they have a bunch of white people running for the Senate in Georgia, they have a bunch of hyper-progressives running for the Senate in Georgia. You've got, for example, Matt Lieberman, Joe Lieberman's son, who wants a gun gun registration program and hyper-supportive of, of gun control laws. John Ossoff, also gun control issues. Uh, Ted Terry, Teresa Tomlinson, Sarah Riggs-Amico, they're all super gun control people. They're business unfriendly. They want to raise taxes on the wealthy. They want to get rid of the president's tax cuts that have helped the economy. The Democrats have a progressive problem, and they don't even recognize that they have a progressive problem, but they do. It's going to come back to haunt them. You know, there's another problem the Democrats have, and that is this impeachment situation on Capitol Hill. It's not doing them any favors with voters. Even Bernie Sanders in, his, in the debate last night pointed out that if they pursue impeachment— and they they signal to voters that they've forgotten about voters. They've been so fixated on on impeachment that they've forgotten the voters that that's going to hurt them. Um, Robert Costa from the Washington Post was on uh, more not on Morning Joe. He was on with um, Brian Williams on MSNBC after the debate last night. I want to play this clip for you before we go to break. That for many Democratic candidates, when you talk to their top strategists, that debate about impeachment. It's relatively over. That's why the first 10, 15 minutes of the debate were quiet. All these Democratic candidates have generally taken the same position. They support the impeachment inquiry, and they know Chairman Schiff and Speaker Pelosi are essentially the strategists for the entire party. The fault lines in this Democratic Party are in health care policy, on economic policy, and that's where the battles will be fought in a race that's somewhat isolated from the impeachment battle. It is isolated from the impeachment battle because the Democrats, by and large, have decided that's what they're going to do. And I don't know that that's going to help them long term because there is something to what Sanders was saying. That this very much could be an issue that turns on the Democrats if voters believe the Democrats have forgotten them. And then there are the small cultural issues nationwide. We're dealing with this here in Georgia. In Pickens County, if you're in Pickens County, I'm on WYYZ in Pickens County right now. You're listening to me live this Wednesday morning. The Pickens County School Board 
has decided it will no longer allow transgender students to use the bathroom of their choice. It's the small cultural issues that are resonating with voters around the country, uh, regardless of income and, and particularly regardless of race. And it's the Democrats' hyper-partisanship on these issues that's going to cause them some problems. We need to discuss the Pickens County situation when we come back. You can call in as well, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Well, we need to get into the law a little bit here. Um, this is a case out of uh, Florida from Jacksonville. Uh, well, it was heard in the, the Jacksonville division uh, for the uh, U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Florida. Uh, it is the case of um, Adams versus St. John's County. Adams versus uh, the school board of St. John's County is a case of a transgender student who wanted to use uh, the bathroom of the gender in which the student identified. And the court, I think, wrongly held that sex under Title IX me includes gender identity. If you decide you identify as a boy, well, then you're a boy, according to this court. It's on appeal to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in Atlanta. And, well, we're in the 11th Circuit. So the school board in Pickens County, Georgia, I think um, probably overreacted. And, um, or let's see, I, yeah, the, this, this case, it, it's, it's before the 11th circuit. Now I don't think it's on the way to the Supreme court. Um, in any event, uh, this case is about transgender bathrooms. The court ruled that you have to let a, let a student, Ooh, boy. Um, let a student use the bathroom where the bathroom, um, where they decide they want to go. I'm trying to be kind here. The, the student, uh, wants to use the boy's bathroom and is pretty clearly not a boy. And Pickens County decided Pickens County here in Georgia decided that they've got to allow, uh, students to use the bathroom of their choice. Well, guess what? It turns out that a lot of students in Pickens County, Georgia, this is north of Atlanta. If you head up 575, uh, go up to Jasper, uh, there's Pickens County. And uh, students and parents decided they were not comfortable having girls in the boys' bathroom and boys in the girls' bathroom, which is what the court decision uh, required. Pickens County decided to allow uh, boys in the girls' bathroom and girls in the boys' bathroom, and the students and the parents protested. Uh, there were harassment, there was threats, so the Pickens County school system has reversed its decision, uh, saying they're doing it to protect staff. Um, this is from the AJC, bowing to pressure from parents and residents. The Pickens County Board of Education announced it will no longer allow transgender students to use restrooms of their choice. There have been many serious safety concerns raised in the past few days. School board members, staff, and students have been threatened due to the administration's implementation of Adams versus St. John's County School District. There have been death threats, student harassment, and vandalism of school property. The decision was made to protect staff and students. The initial decision to let transgender students use the restroom designated for the sex they identified with, not their birth sex, came after an 11th Circuit Court ruling. In Adams versus St. John's County, a transgender student 
who was relegated to use a gender-neutral bathroom, sued for the right to use one that was of the sex they identified. The Florida School District has filed an appeal that is set for oral arguments in December. Now, in other words, so this was a this was a case where in the 11th Circuit, the way it works, the way the law typically works, is that a district court in Florida cannot do anything in Georgia. The district court in Florida determined that this student um, had to be able to use the restroom of her choice. She says she's a he, and she wants to use the boy's bathroom. And so the district court in Florida said that she had to be allowed in the boy's bathroom. The school district has appealed to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which will hear the case in December. Until the 11th Circuit Court really hears the case, it really doesn't apply to Pickens County, Georgia. Now, if the 11th Circuit sides with that case, uh, then suddenly it does become an issue here. But we're in an issue yet again where we have a, a small fringe of people who insist on controlling the morals and values of the rest of us. A lot of us are not happy with the idea of boys in the girls' bathroom. If this case were to go forward and be upheld, then boys could use your daughter's bathroom in school. Or girls could use the boys' bathroom. And what do do schools do with it? We're turning this upside down in in life. You know, there's more and more research that long-term, a lot of kids who identify uh, as the, the opposite gender, they grow up and decide, you know what, I really am a woman, that's what God made me. Or I really am a boy and they want back. Well, unfortunately, you got a bunch of progressives out there who are trying to silence the research and also pressure parents to go on and have the surgeries now so they can't reverse it. It, it, This is bizarre child cruelty is what it is. And our courts are upholding the child cruelty on these issues. And it's come home and of all places, Pickens County, Georgia, they're having to deal with this situation. You know, I'm still amazed. I was gone on vacation for four days, and the NBA still can't dig itself out of its hole. Uh, LeBron James making things even worse. The other day, he said that uh, we should go easy on him because they had a a real hard time. Yeah, a real hard time compared to the protesters in China. Uh, Also, there are reports out that LeBron James pressured the Houston Rockets to fire Daryl Morey, who made the tweet about Hong Kong that got them into this mess in the first place. Well, LeBron has opened his mouth again. So, like, I talked about it yesterday. Uh, I tweeted out a couple of responses to people not understanding, you know, my knowledge of where it came from, from my brain, and, and, and for me learning from the situation. I'm talking about it now, and uh, I, I won't talk about it again uh, because I'll be cheating my teammates by continuing to harp on something that won't benefit us, uh, you know, trying to win a championship because that's what we're here for. Um, we're not politicians. Um, I think it's, it's a huge political thing, um, but we are we are leaders, and, and we can step up at times. But there's times where I'm not saying in this particular instance, but you know, if you don't feel like you should speak upon things, you, you shouldn't have. To. We don't know the landscape of, of the situation if a week would have went by and then the tweet would have happened. Um, it's easy to say, but we, we have no idea. So you know, it's just a, it, was a, it was a challenging it was a challenging trip for for all of us. That was. In China, and uh, a challenging trip, and and we we can be leaders, and we can step up, but not this time. This is all about money. 
And we, we might as well just be honest here. It's all about money, and they don't want to, they, they're willing to count out to the Chinese on this because of their paycheck. Uh, let's just be honest about it. A more honest than LeBron James or any of the rest of these NBA players who continue to dig themselves in the holes. Um, I, it just, it, it's amazing. I, I'll, I'll get back to this. There, there are some breaking news right now, though, I need to get to. Uh, the vice president is headed to uh, Turkey to meet with the Turkish president um, and to talk about the situation in Syria. But uh, Turkey is signaling that the president of Turkey will not meet with Vice President Pence. Now, this is interesting because Erdogan is supposed to meet with President Trump when he comes to the United States. He's coming on a trip next month, and there was going to be a big state visit to the White House. The president was going to roll out the red carpet for Turkey's president. Now Turkey is saying... He will not meet with the vice president of the United States. The White House has asked for a ceasefire in northern Syria, and Turkey is saying that they will not give a ceasefire. They have no intention of engaging in a ceasefire. They have every intention of wiping out the Kurds in northern Syria. While this is happening, ISIS has gone free. The ISIS prisoners who we held captive in northern Syria and who the Kurds were protecting for us, when we left, they went free. Y'all, I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm a little bit bothered by a lot of my conservative friends who aren't willing to tell the president you've messed up here. And I, I think if, if we can't tell the president he's messed up, he's not going to know he's messed up. I mean, this is a man who, when my friends who supported him in 2016 were trying to convince people to support him despite character flaws and despite his lack of experience, one of the selling points that they routinely made on President Trump was that he will be surrounded with really good and competent people and he will listen to those people and they will guide him. And that was certainly true for a while. Uh, General Mattis was there. Uh, he's got Mike Pompeo now. He had John Bolton. He had Nikki Haley. He had a number of extraordinarily good people, and all of them are gone now. And he doesn't appear to be listening to the other people. And that's getting him into trouble. And part of that trouble is in Syria. We have essentially broken eggs, and we're trying to put the eggs back together. This is a Humpty Dumpty situation. Uh, do you realize that the Russians have taken over our military military installations in northern Syria now? There's video footage of the Russians moving into the American military outposts that we established, uh, and so we can't go back. Um, and for those who say that the president is going to end the endless wars, do you know what's happened now? We are sending 2,000 troops to Saudi Arabia and the hundred soldiers that we pulled out of northern Syria, we've had to send back into northern Syria. Yeah, that that's right. Um, I realize that a lot of conservative outlets aren't pointing this out, but unfortunately, uh, the soldiers we pulled out of northern Syria have had to go back into northern Syria. But now they're in a defensive posture uh, because the the Russians have taken over our installations and the Turks are shooting at us. And this was a screw up. And hopefully the president will fix it. It's not a good sign, though, that the Turkish president is refusing to meet with the vice president. Um, I, I'll I'll spend more time on this in a little while. Um, there, there's some more news, I'm sure, developing on this. I, I want to get to impeachment as well. Uh, there is news on impeachment. But I, I want to go back to Hunter Biden. I mentioned him in the first hour. 
Uh, the vice president, of course, uh, stumbled on Hunter Biden in the debate last night. You would think he would have had a better answer for it, but he really didn't. He wanted to make it about Donald Trump. Cory Booker tried to help out the vice president on the debate stage last night. So first of all, understand that this president is turning the moral leadership of this country into a dumpster fire. We, we literally have great generals like Mattis who said on the world stage, the United States of America, there can be no better friend than the United States of America and no better, no greater enemy than the United States of America. This president has turned that upside down and now is doing things to undermine our critical alliances and partner with Russia. And so clearly to your, uh, to your question, number one, we cannot allow the Russians to continue to grow in influence by abandoning the world stage. We cannot allow Russia to not only interfere in the democracies of the Ukraine and Latvia and Lithuania, but even not calling them out for their efforts to interfere in this democracy are unacceptable. So you had Booker doing an assist for Joe Biden, and Biden himself, despite all of the help, continued to stumble. You announced that if you're president, no one in your family or associated with you will be involved in any foreign businesses. My question is, if it's not okay for a president's family to be involved in foreign businesses, why was it okay for your son when you were vice president? Vice President Biden? Look, uh, my son did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. I carried out the policy of the United States government in rooting out corruption in, in Ukraine. And that's what we should be focusing on. And what I wanted to make a point about, and my, my son's statement speaks for itself. He spoke about it today. My son's statement speaks for itself. What I think is important is we focus on why it's so important to remove this man from office. On the 17th, look, the fact that George Washington worried on the first time he spoke after being elected president that what we had to worry about is foreign interference in our elections. It was the greatest threat to America. This president on three occasions, three occasions, has invited foreign governments and heads of government to get engaged in trying to alter our elections. The fact is that it is outrageous. Rudy Giuliani, the president and his thugs have already proven that they in fact are flat lying. What we have to do now is focus on Donald Trump. He doesn't want me to be the candidate. He's going after me because he knows if I get if I get the nomination, I will beat him like a drum. You'll beat him like a drum, except you're, you're starting to have problems. Um, Hunter Biden, for example, remember, Joe says that he and Hunter never talked. Well, here's Hunter Biden in his ABC interview. No, in, in retrospect, look, I, I, I think that it was poor judgment on my part is that I think that it was poor judgment because I don't believe now, when I look back on it, I know that there was no, did nothing wrong at all. However, was it poor judgment to be in the middle of something that is a, it, it's a, it's a swamp in, in, in many ways? Yeah. And so I take, I take um, full responsibility for that. Do I, did I do anything improper? No, in, not in any way, not in any way whatsoever. I joined a board, I served honorably, I, did, I focused on corporate governance, I didn't have any discussions with my father before or after I joined the board as it related to it, other than that brief exchange that we had. <laughs> he can't contradict himself there, can he? Joe says they had no conversation, and here's Hunter on TV saying, yes, yes, they did. 
And now there's this other issue here with him. Just listen, listen to this. Really care about. What should people know about Hunter Biden that they don't know? Like every single person that I've ever known, I have fallen and I've gotten up. I've done esteemable things and things that are, have been in my life that I, that, that I regret. Every single one of those things has brought me exactly to where I am right now, which is probably the best place I've ever been in my life. I've gone through my own struggles. Yeah. In and out of rehab seven, eight times. Say it nicer to me. <laughs> Sought treatment for issue. Sought treatment for substance abuse yeah, issues. So seven or eight times. I'm so sorry. <laughs> cocaine and crack cocaine and alcohol, apparently. Uh, Hunter Biden is a messed up dude uh, who did exercise. He, he There are no allegations about him that he broke the law. And, and, and that's the thing here. There's no allegation that he broke the law, but can we just say it was unethical trading on his father's name? No, in, in retrospect, look, I, I, I think that it was poor judgment on my part. Is that I think that it was poor judgment because I don't believe now, when I look back on it, I know that there was did nothing wrong at all. However, was it poor judgment to be in the middle of something that is a it, it's a it's a swamp in, in in many ways? Yeah, and so I take I take. Um, full responsibility for that. Do I, did I do anything improper? No, in, not in any way, not in any way whatsoever. I joined a board, I served honorably, I did, I focused on corporate governance. I didn't have any discussions with my father before or after I joined the board as it related to it, other than that brief exchange that we had. Yeah, his poor judgment. Well, I want to play one more clip from the Hunter Biden interview because it kind of builds on the rest of it listen to this uh and, and then let's get into this I, if not more in the list that you gave me of the reasons why you're on that board you did not list the fact that you were the son of the vice of course president. yeah no I, what I, role do you think that played i think that it is impossible for me to be on any of the boards that i just mentioned without saying that i'm the son of the vice president of the united states you were paid fifty thousand dollars a month for your position? Look, I'm a private citizen. One thing that I don't have to do is sit here and open my kimono as it relates to how much money I make or make or did or didn't. But it's all been reported. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. I, I don't Probably think not. that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. Yes, and, and that's the point of the focus here. He's a duply screwed up individual uh, in and out of rehab who exercised poor judgment, did not break any laws, uh, but then this is the ethics of it. You know, to the extent that the Democrats complain about Donald Trump, the thing that Donald Trump and his kids have done is they've done what all the other Democrats have done out there, except they've done it uh, slightly differently. Donald Trump's kids did this before their father was elected, and then their dad got elected, and now the Democrats are saying, oh, 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 you're using your dad's position to benefit your, your business. And it appears that they've actually withdrawn from areas around the world because of their father's presidency, unlike Hunter Biden, who admits, I just played the audio, he would not have gotten these positions but for his father being the vice president and the senator. Again, as Anderson Cooper pointed out to, to Joe Biden, Hunter Biden got hired as a credit card lobbyist as Joe Biden was pushing a bill through uh, to, or no, I'm sorry, it, it was Mark Caputo um, from the political point of this out. Hunter Biden got hired as a lobbyist by credit card companies as his father was championing a piece of legislation credit card companies wanted done. 
We see, I mean, for God's sakes, we see this in, in the legislature here in Georgia, where I am. The number of members of our legislature whose children become lobbyists before the legislature. The Speaker of the House in Georgia is in a situation like this. The, 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 the speed cameras that they're putting in school zones is, is a piece of legislation championed by Speaker David Ralston's son. You've got Joe Biden's son getting jobs that he would never have gotten as a as a multiple rehab person with questionable ethics, except he was Joe Biden's son. There, the big difference between the Trump family and the Biden family is that Donald Trump did not have to get elected president of the United States for his children to use his name. Donald Trump's entire brand is based on his name, but Joe Biden's entire brand is based on his name as well. And Hunter Biden did exactly what all sorts of politicians in Washington do. Harry Reid was a poor boxer from Searchlight, Nevada, who wound up getting a, a, a fancy... A, condo in the Ritz-Carlton and his son become became a lobbyist. Time and time again, you follow the money in Washington, D.C., and what you find is that these kids from these politicians become lobbyists and make tons of money trading in on their parents and access to their parents. And everybody in Washington just thinks that's the way it goes. The fact that Joe Biden can't say this is wrong is a pretty damning indictment, not just of Joe Biden, but of the political establishment as a whole. They want to cast out Donald Trump and his family, saying that they're trading off the White House to get rich. Meanwhile, they're all trading off their parents. Uh, privileges and, and positions to get rich. And I think it's wrong across the board. I, and I think we sh- should point this out. I don't think that Donald Trump's family should trade in on Donald Trump any more than any of the rest of these people should trade in on their parents. The difference is that the Democrats want to excuse it when it's everybody but Donald Trump. And I think the American people fundamentally understand that in a country where the Constitution says there will be no titles of nobility, we essentially have an aristocracy shaping up in this country where you have longtime politicians in Washington, D.C. whose kids trade access and the families get wealthy based on that access. And I think that's a fundamental problem. You know, I, I tell my kids all the time, I, I got a, a, a 14-year-old and a 10-year-old. He'll be 11 in December. The 14-year-old just turned 14. I don't want them to be in my business. If, if they want, if they want a, out of their own passion and conviction to be in radio, God bless them for wanting to do it. But I don't want them to come into radio because that's what dad did, so they think they should do it. I, I don't want them to come in and trade on my name. I, I think of some of the, the late great people in radio and their kids who were so tied into their father's businesses uh, that they went into radio and they never really succeeded as far. Whatever happened to Paul Harvey's son? I, I, I don't know. Um, he would fill in for, for Paul Harvey. I love Paul Harvey as a kid. My dad listened to him all the time. I don't know what happened to his son, but he, he helped his father tremendously. And then when his father died, I I don't know what happened to him, but, but he established himself in his father's shadow. I want my kids to establish themselves in their own right. And what Hunter Biden did is he established himself in his father's shadow and tried to trade in on his father's name. And that happens more and more in Washington with, with a bunch of kids who otherwise are singularly unaccomplished and would be unaccomplished. Um, live your own life. Don't live in the shadow of your parent. Uh, be your own person. Hunter Biden is not. 
And I wonder if that has something to do with, in addition to the, the terrible tragedy from growing up, if that has something to do with his problems later in life, as he realizes he's not really his own man. His entire future is anchored to his father's success, which is kind of sad, frankly. We should feel sorry for him. He should be in our prayers. But my goodness, establish yourself in life. There have been rumors circulating uh, that Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, was on the verge of imminently appointing someone to the Senate seat for Johnny Isaacson. Um, I, <laughs> I've been told by several people, and I believe this is true, that no one really knows what's going on in this situation. And I think they're right. No one actually knows uh, what the governor is going to do when the governor is going to do it in this situation. Um, he's keeping his cards close to his vest. And in fact, uh, I, I have been told by very reliable sources that anyone who says they know who it's going to be or when the pick is going to come doesn't know what they're talking about. And I think that's fair to say. I certainly don't, and I haven't wanted to bother the governor about it, uh, largely because I think he's probably been um, browbeaten and overwhelmed on the issue by so many people. So many people want their guy to be the governor's pick. I, I, I'm halfway tempted to text him and just say my obligatory text to you to bother you about the George Senate seat. <laughs> nobody knows when it's happening. No, nobody knows. Um, we will see. I, when we come back, I want to delve into impeachment. Nancy Pelosi has said the House of Representatives is not going to have a formal vote on impeachment. They're going to continue an investigation. The problem for Nancy Pelosi in this regard is that the House of Representatives by doing so, is limiting their ability to request certain documents. There actually are court cases on this issue. And they're also giving Republicans in the Senate a way to ignore the process, uh, which is good if you're, if you're a Republican. If, if you support President Trump, uh, then the Democrats are playing right into his hands. You know, it is kind of absurd to me that the Democrats are really obsessed with the idea that Donald Trump is, is breaking all the norms of society. You hear this repeatedly from Democrats, uh, that Donald Trump is breaking the norms of society. But they're breaking the norms themselves, which means that Donald Trump is winning because if, if they're play, they're playing to his strength. I mean, Donald Trump is a disruptive force. Whether you like him or not, you can't deny Donald Trump is a disruptive force, and the Democrats are playing right into that. Uh, and I want to break down the process of impeachment when we come back, but more than that, I want to go through the history of impeachment because I took the time to do it. I took the time to go through and, and look at the impeachments historically and discovered how often the Democrats have done them when they controlled the House of Representatives and how in all the cases they actually filed a formal resolution to begin an impeachment proceeding to look into it. And that's coming into play in a court case we need to get into. And then there's the curious case of John Bolton and why Republicans are starting to turn on him. We'll discuss when we come back here on The Eric Erickson Show. Welcome back. It is the third hour. Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson show across the state of Georgia from the mountains to the sea, uh, except that's uh, not intended to be a Sherman reference. And <laughs> now that I say it, yeah, okay. All right. If I had a do over, uh, the phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. 
I, I'm still hung up three hours into this program from last night that uh, Beto O'Rourke didn't take a knee during the Democratic debates nationally. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hung up that they actually didn't or th- that they did the national anthem. Uh, I'm, and I'm just as hung up that they did the national anthem and Beto didn't take a knee. Uh, he and the NBA players continuing to disgrace themselves over all of so much stuff. Now, uh, I, I don't want to talk about that. I do want to talk about impeachment this hour. And the, there are a couple of things that I want to talk about. First and foremost, let's talk about the process. Because I think that uh, going through the process will be educational for you. The Democrats say that the process is what they say it is. And you need to understand some backstory here. There's actually a federal case going on right now. Democrats have asked for grand jury testimony that they want in impeachment matters. Federal courts have said grand jury, if if the, the scope of congressional inquiry relates to legislation. So if Congress is legislating, it has plenary power to request information to help it make wise legislative decisions. But courts have held this going all the way to the Supreme Court in in, in the Nixon situation that if if the legislature is legislating or they're in oversight mode, they don't have the power to request grand jury testimony because grand jury testimony must be given paramount secrecy and confidentiality. So the only way that the House can get grand jury testimony is to be in an impeachment process. That matters. They've got to actually be in an impeachment process. And and here's the problem that the Democrats have just strategically. They have been in a situation with a number of committees, seven different committees, investigating aspects of the Trump administration, the Trump campaign, the president, the president's children, the Trump organization, uh, and they've been very, very broad. And it was all it was all advertised as oversight. But now suddenly Nancy Pelosi, a few weeks ago, you will recall, had a press conference and she said that this is now we're going to treat this as impeachment. Well, that's that's all well and good. The the argument from the Democrats is that Republicans changed the rules that allow them to do this. Now, that's not actually true. It has to do with the Republicans changing the rules to allow chairmen to subpoena individuals without consent of the committee. That was a big change by Republicans. Um, they did it. They they wanted to be able to surprise the Obama administration. But that, that doesn't change that the Republicans use this for oversight, not for impeachment. The problem the Democrats have is that for every impeachment in the 20th century and into the 21st century that they've had, they've actually had House resolutions that vote a vote of the House to begin initiating impeachment resolutions. This goes back to uh, the Nixon administration, House Resolution 803 of the 93rd Congress. That was the impeachment, that was the resolution to begin an impeachment. Uh, House Resolution 803 
resolved that the appropriate resolved to give the appropriate power to the committee on the judiciary to conduct an investigation of whether sufficient grounds exist to impeach Richard M. Nixon, president of the United States. Uh, there was a roll call vote on that and it passed in 1973. And since then, they've been doing it every time. In uh, the 101st Congress in 1989, the Democrats submitted a vote to begin an impeachment inquiry into Walter Nixon, no relation to Richard, uh, whether or not to impeach Walter Nixon. In the 105th Congress in 1998, uh, there was the uh, issue of authorizing the Committee of the Judiciary to investigate whether sufficient grounds exist for the impeachment of William Jefferson Clinton. There was a House vote on that. In the 111th Congress in 2009, there was a, an, a, a resolution to begin an inquiry on the impeachment of Samuel Kent, a federal judge. There was also in, in the 110th Congress a resolution authorizing the Committee on the Judiciary to begin an impeachment of um, Thomas Porteous, a judge in Louisiana. There was, of course, the matter of the impeachment of Alcee Hastings in 1989 that also had a resolution where the House did a resolution that said resolved the Judiciary Committee or whatever committee should investigate whether there are sufficient grounds to impeach X, Y, and Z for high crimes and misdemeanors or for conduct unbecoming. And they did this every time. And now the Democrats are saying they don't have to do this. Here's the problem. I've talked to multiple Republican members of the Senate. And all of them say, now some of them will never vote to impeach the president. Some of them are actually willing to consider it, but not a single one of them is willing to consider it if the Democrats don't follow historic precedent. And I, I'm not talking in a term when I say this, that uh, several of the people I, I talk to have said fairly well that the Democrats say the president is violating historic norms. For the Democrats to begin an impeachment process violating historic norms, they themselves are becoming like Trump, in which case Donald Trump wins. There is no reason for any member of the United States Senate to take seriously an impeachment from the House of Representatives if the House of Representatives is not following its own historic norms. And that's really important. See, the Senate Republicans, many of them don't like the president. And this situation in Syria makes it even worse. There is, by the way, a bipartisan meeting happening at the White House. Uh, I think right now, um, maybe in a little while, uh, of the joint bicameral bipartisan meeting with the president to discuss the situation in northern Syria. And Republicans and the Senate are livid about it. They are genuinely upset. And there are some of them who believe the president is burning so much, uh, so many bridges and generating so much ill will. They would consider an impeachment. They do not stand before the voters anytime soon. So why not consider an impeachment from the House? But, and this is actually a very big but, 
They want to see that the House of Representatives takes it seriously, too. And in taking it seriously, they want to see that historic norms are followed. And in wanting to see historic norms are followed, they want to see an inquiry, a resolution, referred to one of the appropriate committees or a select committee or a special committee, one Nancy Pelosi forms and handpicks the people to sit on, uh, to actually investigate whether there are grounds for impeachment. And because that hasn't happened, this signals a couple of things to members of the Senate. And frankly, it, it is signals these things to the Republicans as well. One, the Democrats don't actually have the votes. And that's pretty clear here that the Democrats don't have sufficient support across their party to begin a formal inquiry into impeachment. Some Democrats, frankly, have already come out and said, hey, wait a second, we need to slow this thing down. Or uh, one of them, I think, uh, last night after Pelosi said there won't be a formal vote, said we, we don't need to have a formal vote. There's no there there right now. Well, the problem is that with there being no there there right now, it looks like a fishing expedition to the Republicans. And it looks that way to the Senate Republicans in particular. And the Senate Republicans understand just as you can indict a ham sandwich, you can impeach a ham sandwich if you drag it out long enough, send out enough subpoenas and and maliciously harass people until you get what you want and shape a narrative. And Republicans don't want to see a narrative being shaped. They actually want to see Democrats taking this seriously. I mean, that, that's the lay of the land right there. That's why I don't see this happening. And, and I got to tell you, the longer the Democrats drive, drag this out, one, they look incompetent. And I really do think that they, they really do look incompetent. Uh, two, they look partisan. And every single one of us can agree this is a partisan inquiry. Impeachment is a political inquiry. But it makes it look like the Democrats themselves are not in command so much as the far left of the party is in command. Because if you can't get the moderate Democrats to go along with impeaching the president, given where we are right now, then it really does look like Nancy Pelosi isn't in charge. It really does look like the president himself is right when he talks about the Democrats um, being um, the, the Democrats being controlled by. AOC and, and the others. The president has said this repeatedly. And this is a line Republicans have picked up. It is a line that Republicans are going to continue to echo. And it is a line that I think ultimately will begin to resonate with people when people realize the Democrats aren't actually going forward with impeachment. As long as that exists out there, they're going to have a hard time moving forward. As long as uh, the Democrats refuse to have this vote to begin a formal inquiry of impeachment. They're going to have problems. Now, on top of that, we got the Ruli Giuliani situation. This clip is from last week. I played it. It's worth playing again just to set this up. Yeah, we had been expecting this move, a dramatic move, escalating this impeachment inquiry by the House, led by the House Intelligence Committee. Just moments ago, they announced they had issued a subpoena to the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, demanding he turn over documents as part of their investigation by October 15th. Now, what the Democrats uh, are asking for are communications and other efforts that Giuliani was involved with to urge Ukrainian officials to launch an investigation into the president's political rival, former Vice President Joe Biden. They say in this letter uh, that 
that, uh, citing comments that uh, Giuliani even made on, on CNN, telling our colleague Chris Cuomo when he acknowledged, saying, of course I did ask Ukraine to look into Joe Biden. Now, in this, uh, this letter, they break down a number of different categories of documents that they want to, to Giuliani to turn over, documents from over the last couple of more than two years. Uh, so that's why they're giving him two weeks to provide all this documentation. Now, in addition to that, they're at they're, they, these the chairman of these three committees, it's the House Intelligence Committee led by Adam Schiff, but also the whole House Foreign Affairs Committee led by Elliot Engel and House Oversight Committee led by Elijah Cummings. They've sent letters to three of Giuliani's business associates seeking depositions of these individuals. So what we're seeing more broadly here, Brooke, is an, is an escalation by this committee, which is already, these committees have already sent subpoenas over to the State Department asking to turn over documents relating to this effort to apparently urge Ukraine government to investigate the Bidens also seeking depositions from former State Department officials. They, the House Intelligence Committee separately wants to talk to the Intelligence Committee's Inspector General once again. Uh, so we're starting to see the pieces come together of a rapidly escalating impeachment probe. Notice he said the deadline, October 15th. That was yesterday. Giuliani said, you know what? I'm not going to cooperate. And he refused to hand over any documents whatsoever. And now the vice president of the United States has weighed in as well and said, nope, not going to cooperate, not going to hand over any documents. Why? Because they view this as oversight. They don't view it as impeachment. And the Democrats are playing into their hands continuously on this. News and in-depth analysis from Eric Erickson, live five days a week and always online at theresurgent.com. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. So I mentioned uh, headed out to commercial break. The vice president has said he's not going to cooperate with the Democrats either. And again, the Democrats can say all they want. Well, this is obstruction and we're going to charge everybody with obstruction. But how can they do that? They're going to build an impeachment case for obstruction. They can't indict the vice president. They cannot compel the vice president to show up uh, and answer questions. They can't do any of that. Uh, they're not even impeaching the vice president. Um, and as far as anyone can tell, they they haven't had a formal vote on impeachment. Now, listen, uh, ultimately, let, let me let me just uh, cut to the chase on this issue. The Democrats have a very good argument that constitutionally there is no prescribed mode or method by which to begin impeachment, and there's not. But I, I read it to you before, and it is worth pointing out again that the past precedent in history is that the the House of Representatives does, in fact, uh, follow some level of precedent and does, in fact, require, based on that precedent, a vote to begin a formal inquiry. Again, this is from House Practice and Procedure. This is the book that the clerks of the House and the parliamentarians of the House use to decide whether something is uh, legally and parliamentary sound or not. Uh, this is from the section on impeachment. Under the modern practice, an impeachment is normally instituted by the House uh, by the adoption of a resolution calling for a committee investigation of charges against the officer in question. In most cases, impeachment proceedings in the House have been initiated either by introducing a resolution of impeachment through the hopper or by offering a resolution of impeachment on the floor as a question of privilege in the House. 
That's typically what happens. And they haven't done that. Now, again, this, this is this is very clear here. Let me read you this portion again. Uh, I, I, I deploy my, I'm not giving legal advice. I was a lawyer. I'm not giving legal advice. I'm deploying my legal reasoning, however. Under the modern practice, an impeachment is normally instituted by the House by the adoption of a resolution. Note the key phrases, under the modern practice, not under the rules, under the practice. And impeachment is normally, meaning not necessarily always. Now, uh, where this normally comes in, though, is the Clinton impeachment. The Clinton impeachment was begun by the Starr Report. The Starr Report was conveyed to Congress. Congress had a vote on releasing the Starr Report to the public. And then based on the Starr Report, there was a resolution passed to see if there actually was anything in the Starr Report that was impeachable. And they went from there. So it wasn't quite the same route as with everyone else. But again, I, I've read you. I've gone back in the impeachments of the federal judges and of uh, going all the way back to Richard Nixon. And even the even the Clinton impeachment, there was a vote on the floor of the House to send to the committee of the judiciary the Starr report requesting an examination of whether or not there was anything impeachable. In the Nixon case and all the federal judges between Nixon and Clinton and even after Clinton, there was a resolution to begin an inquiry of impeachment. So the vice president's argument here is that they haven't done this. This is their practice. Their own book of procedure says this is their practice. And because they haven't done it, uh, the they're going nowhere. Now, to circle back, just, just to, to clear up some confusion, and I'm sorry, I was I had I, I've got all these metal thoughts. Normally I outline, and frankly, I'm just winging it. I, I've got little points I want to hit, and I'm I'm kind of just doing this off the top of my head and trying to pull up the notes as I got I got notes scattered all over my desk on this stuff. I'm I'm trying to educate everybody. Uh not not just give you the tar partisan talking points on this. There are no you should see my I, I don't even want to Instagram a picture of my desk. It is so messy right now. But I, I did want to lay out all the cases. I did want to lay out all this. So let me go back to this federal case. There is a federal court case I mentioned in, in the last segment uh, that the House of Representatives is requesting grand jury testimony related to the Comey investigation. And there is, as I mentioned, clear court rulings that you can't get grand jury testimony of your Congress unless you're in an impeachment inquiry. Why? Because grand jury testimony is never presumed applicable to legislating from Congress. Why? Because anything before a grand jury is not uh, someone being found guilty. And because no one violated a crime, it's just an inquiry, a, a legal inquiry then you can't shape policy based on that grand jury inquiry. But if you go into an impeachment, the scope of which uh, the House of Representatives can request information is much broader. And so if they're in an impeachment inquiry, then they can request grand jury testimony. This goes back to the Nixon days. Well, a judge is having to decide, is the House of Representatives in an impeachment inquiry? And the Justice Department has argued that they're not. Based on their own pattern of practice, their own precedent, uh, they always have an, a formal resolution requesting impeachment, and they haven't done that. Therefore, this is just partisan gamesmanship in the House of Representatives. And, you know, everybody says, even the judiciary acknowledges, the Constitution is very clear. The House has the sole power to impeach. No one else has that power. And the Constitution says that the House and the Senate make their own rules. So if the House 
is has the sole power of to impeach, and the House is the only entity that can make its rules on how to impeach. No one can tell it what to do. The problem is that the House has in the past told itself, this is how we're going to do it, and they're not doing that now. That becomes a real procedural problem and burden for the House of Representatives to have to overcome uh, before a judge. We'll see how this judge rules. The ruling should be coming up pretty soon, uh, and that could shape what Nancy Pelosi does next. It is Eric Erickson. Welcome. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We may circle back to last night. I, I don't really want to circle back to last night's debate. We may have to. Um, but I, I want to, Is so I, I was gone on Monday and Tuesday. You know, I, I should be gone today, too. Um, so my kids have off Columbus Day. Yes, we call it Columbus Day. Yes, it is Columbus Day. Uh, Columbus is worth celebrating and remembering. He took a bold risk. Uh, you know, by, by the standards of the, the 14th and 15th century, everyone is too unwoke to be celebrated these days. Uh, it, it's worth celebrating a man who on the Nina, the Pinta and the Santa Maria sailed around the world in search of Indian and found the new world. Um, nonetheless, I digress. My kids had off, uh, for fall break, uh, Monday, Tuesday, and they've got off today. Uh, they are in the other room um, trying to be quiet. Actually, not really. I got, I've got i got a home studio and I've got soundproof doors so they can be rowdy and I can't hear them. It's very nice. I can lock myself away. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, but, you know, there were there were moments. And, and again, I, I, I think them earlier, but it, in this last big segment, let me think again, Alan Saters and Chris Burns. Uh, it, it's nice to have two people who won't burn the house down while I'm gone. Uh, who can fill in for me. Very, very appreciative of them. But so while I was gone, I made a little notes. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. One of the things I wanted to talk about is I was really deeply critical of President Trump uh, leaving northern Syria. And I wrote about it uh, the other day in very blunt terms, yesterday as a matter of fact, and made a lot of people on both sides mad at me. The people on the left who really hate the president are mad at me for pointing out that the PKK, the terrorist, the Kurdish group that we support in Syria is a terrorist group. The United States government lists this Kurdish group as a terrorist group. So why are we with them? Well, y'all, can we be honest? Um, there, There are a lot of ideological people who have very idealized foreign policies. And they want their principles at all time to govern their foreign policy. Jimmy Carter was one of those. Uh, and look where it got us. Uh, we no longer have the Panama Canal, among other things. But uh, nonetheless, I'm kind of in the real world. In the real world, there are bad people who want to kill you. And the best way to stop them is to ally with other people who want to kill the bad people. And sometimes there are bad people who want to kill the other bad people and you ally with those bad people, uh, and you all kill the really bad people together, and you would otherwise not be friends. The PKK Kurdish group in northern Syria is actually a communist nationalist outfit uh, that has been pushed out of all the other major Kurdish groups and entities. And they are our ally against ISIS, uh, but they are a terrorist group, and they've made incursions repeatedly into southern Turkey, and that's why the Turks want to kill them. Uh, but we have largely re restrained the Turks from being able to do that while ISIS is afoot in northern Syria. 
And uh, the reality is that um, the PKK would be on a designated terrorist list that we would be attacking probably if ISIS wasn't there. But uh, they've kept ISIS busy and ISIS has kept them so busy they haven't had a chance to really bother the Turks. Well, now that we've pulled out, the Turks are moving into northern Syria to wipe out these Kurds. And by the way, we made a lot of promises to these Kurds. We made a lot of promises to these Kurds. And now we betrayed all those promises. And in the process, ISIS has gone free. So I'm getting a lot of criticism from people who don't like the president for pointing out that these Kurds really aren't good people. But I'm getting a lot of criticism from the president's supporters by pointing out uh, that if you people would stop humping the president's leg for just a minute and look at the actual situation, you would see the president is actually making the situation worse and more unstable. All these people say, oh, we're going to end the endless wars. The president's going to end the endless wars. Oh, yay, the president. Um, you know, we're sending 2000 soldiers now to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did, did you know? Did, did you know? Did, did you know that? All, all, all the people out there saying, we're going to end the endless wars. You're sending 2,000 more soldiers to Saudi Arabia now. Oh, and by the way, we pulled out all of those soldiers from northern Syria, and now we've decided to redeploy them. The Russians have taken over our military base that we set up in northern Syria, so we can't go back there, but we're having to redeploy now. Why? Because the situation is escalating out of control. And now that we've gotten out of the way, the president's decided this isn't a good thing. We need to go back and we can't go back because we don't have the base. This isn't a good situation. So, and this all gets me to, to my real frustration here is I, I, I told the president himself on the phone, I will vote for him in 2020. I have written repeatedly, I will vote for him in 2020. But if the president isn't going to listen to the A-listers around him or the B-listers or the C-listers or even the D-listers, and he's going to do stuff like this and make the situation worse, I I, I don't know uh, at what point he becomes is still better than the Democrats. And I, I mean that in loving criticism to him and his administration. He's got to fix this because I would like to get out of the Middle East, but now he's having to send 2,000 extra troops to Saudi Arabia in addition to sending back into northern Syria all the people he moved south so the Turks could kill the Kurds. And by the way, ISIS has gone free. And I've got friends of mine who refuse to say this is bad because they're afraid that they will be helping the Democrats. You're not helping the Democrats. The president is helping the Democrats by doing this. You help the president by holding him accountable. I, I now call me a fool on this. Call, call me naive, but I really think if we're not willing to criticize our own side, we open ourselves up to all sorts of other criticism that isn't warranted. If we can't hold our own side accountable, the voters will hold our side accountable. I fundamentally believe this. I, I still, to this day, I don't understand why I can't criticize Donald Trump when the same people who are really highly defensive of me criticizing Donald Trump were perfectly willing for me to criticize uh, George W. Bush on a stupid immigration deal or on Harriet Myers or on No Child Left Behind or on TARP or on the General Motors bailout. But somehow we got to rally around the flag on dumb decisions now. I don't know why. The other thing that really frustrates me 
is that I'm seeing a lot of conservatives who love John Bolton now turn on John Bolton. The president seems to be under the belief that John Bolton is one of the leakers from the White House throwing him under the bus. And now a bunch of Donald Trump supporters are out to get John Bolton, a man they have dearly loved for a decade. Remember, George W. Bush put John Bolton in as interim ambassador to the United Nations. He could not be the full confirmed ambassador to the United Nations because he was blocked by Richard, was it Luger, I think? Richard Luger, who blocked him? But he went in anyway for two years and shook the place up. He, he was, he was the, the Nikki Haley with the mustache back then. I mean, he was awesome, and people loved him, and he was hardcore, and he's been hardcore on foreign policy issues time and time again. He's been solid. He's been solid on getting the president to steer away from a bad deal with North Korea. He's been solid on getting the president out of a sticky situation with Iran when bureaucrats in the State Department were trying to get the president back into the Iran deal. He's been solid in dealing with Venezuela. He's been solid in dealing with Ukraine. He's been solid in dealing with Russia. Time and time again, John Bolton's instincts have been righted. Everyone has loved him. The crowd's gone wild. Wild. But he appears to have been deeply critical of the president's phone call with Ukraine's president and was very deeply critical of withholding aid from Ukraine that he thought was very much needed. And there are reports coming out now that John Bolton behind the scenes was very concerned with the full ramifications of the president's phone call. And suddenly people are out there throwing him under the bus. But here's the thing. We don't know. We we don't actually know. Because everything we're hearing about John Bolton has come through second and third hand sources. John Bolton hasn't testified. John Bolton hasn't spoken. And so people are out there right now. They're rushing to define John Bolton on their terms and making him a bad guy when John Bolton's been a good guy consistently. And I I, I got to say, if people are so willing to turn on others who dare level any sort of legitimate criticism against the president, uh, that suggests to me that there's something fatally flawed in their own reasoning. Because every president gets criticism from his own side. And so I don't understand why people are far more sensitive of this president getting criticism from inside the House. I, I get the criticism from outside the House. I get the criticism. I, 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 I get saying that the left just hates the president. Their criticism is invalid. But John Bolton's been really loyal. And if John Bolton has concerns, shouldn't we listen? General Mattis, Gen- General Mattis had concerns. General Mattis hadn't said bupkis. General Mattis refuses to say anything, but we know General Mattis had concerns. And in fact, General Mattis's resignation letter said if the president did exactly what the president is doing, there would be major fallout from it. There would be consequence from it. And in fact, guess what happened? Uh, the, even the Secretary of Defense on Chris Wallace over the weekend said what happened is exactly what they told the president would happen. And it did. They were right. That doesn't make the Secretary of Defense the bad guy for saying what happened is what we told the president would happen. We should not be quick to turn on people who have been our friends for so long because they say something that we don't like. Maybe we should listen to them. And that's part of the problem here on the left and the right these days, that the moment you have any sort of uh, deviation from the tribe you're supposed to be in, you're committing heresy or you're an apostate.
John Calvin said that the mind is a perpetual factory of idols. And we make all sorts of idols, and we have turned in this country, all of us politicians, into gods. And the causes related to those candidates have become our religion. And anyone who steps out of line is a heretic or an apostate and must be destroyed. All of us need to repent for that. We have all of us, every single one of us, elevated politics too much in this country. In fact, you know, we, we see this now with some of these pastors out there. Um, Jack Graham, Franklin Graham, uh, Robert Jeffries, they, they've all come out uh, commending Paula White. Paula White is a prosperity gospel minister. And uh, they're, they're all commending her new book that's come out, and they're all doing it because they're all Trump supporters and that evangelical coalition together. And I got to tell you, she's a prosperity gospel preacher, and I think the prosperity gospel is heresy. For those of you who don't know what the prosperity gospel is, it essentially says God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise today. God wants your best life now, as one of the heretics says, and it is a heresy. Uh, the prosperity gospel is a heresy. Why? Because it suggests strongly in its preachings and teachings that God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise now, well, when actually God just wants you, period. And in so doing, uh, you're going to be persecuted. And the prosperity gospel suggests you're going to get healthy, wealthy, and wise, uh, and but nobody can get richer than the minister. If you're getting too rich, you're not giving enough to the minister. It's a heresy. It, it is stunning to me to see Southern Baptist ministers out there uh, recommending this book because they're all in the in the Trump club together. When they get upset when someone like Beth Moore, who's an Orthodox Bible-believing complementarian, um, goes into a church and talks, doesn't preach, talks. <gasps> there might be men. How can she do this? And I don't mean to put Beth Moore on the spot, but I, I love me some Beth Moore. Uh, she is a wonderful woman. And she's a good Christian uh, from an Orthodox Bible-believing background who has led many a person to Christ and doesn't peddle in prosperity gospel nonsense. And some of the same people who are commending this book uh, would be in high dungeons over, over Beth Moore. It's just crazy to me how tribalism has gotten us to this point. You know, there is a real truth out there. There is real truth out there. And very few people seem interested in giving it to you. Or if they give it to you, they want to give it to you in a way that, that doesn't offend your sensibilities ever. Uh, sometimes I think we need our sensibilities offended a little bit more. Um, I, it just, it's, it's really disappointing to me anyway. Uh, I, I guess I should get off that soapbox now, but I, you know, if John Bolton speaks, I'm going to listen to him because John Bolton is someone I think everyone should listen to because he's been a man who has been a prophet in his time. He, he's had wise words and, and a lot of, a lot of foresight in what's happening to the world. We shouldn't dismiss him. I really do like his opinion on things. Eric Erickson, the information you need and the truth you demand. Well, he tells it like it is. Live every weekday. It is Eric Erickson. Let, let, let me let me go back to John Bolton one more time. I, I, I want to real quick uh, get back to this audio uh, from Martha McCallum last night on Fox. Tells from ex-White House Russia advisor thrusting a new figure center stage of the impeachment inquiry, former National Security Advisor John Bolton. Now, according to the New York Times, Bolton told the advisor, Fiona Hill, to contact NSC lawyers after he got into a heated exchange with the EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland over how the Ukraine 
situation was unfolding. Bolton's, Bolton said to Hill, according to her testimony, quote, I am not part of whatever drug deal Sondland and Mulvaney are cooking up. He also reportedly described Rudy Giuliani as a, quote, hand grenade who's going to blow everybody up. Giuliani saying today that he is disappointed in John Bolton as tensions between those and current past ties to the president appear to boil over. This is just this, this, listen again, uh, John Bolton's right about Rudy. I mean, th this is the, the thing that boggles my mind about this entire situation is the president of the United States may be on the verge of impeachment because of Rudy Giuliani's idiocy. I, 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 I still maintain, based on what we know right now, the president does not deserve impeachment. The president should not be impeached. But uh, the Rudy Giuliani stuff, man, he, he's, he's going to get the president impeached, isn't he? That's just, that's, that's craziness, uh, the stuff that Giuliani has done. And, and done it in the president's name as well. Um, there, there's a problem there for the president. And he, this is, this is going to spill over, unfortunately. Okay, um, now I, I gotta I, I want to urge something from you. I want you, yeah, we're, I'm, I'm gonna do it. I am. No, no, I, I, <laughs> uh, so my producer knows exactly what I'm about to do by the change of tone of my voice and he doesn't want me to do it. I'm going to do it. You're going to t pick up your cell phone. And you're going to text the word recipe to three, three, seven, seven, seven. Y'all, I got to tell you, I was gone uh, four days and I got to experiment some of the kitchen. If you follow me on Instagram, by the way, uh, E.W. Erickson, E.W. E.R.I.C.K.S.O.N. Um, e I, I like to cook. I had my pizza oven out. I got a rock box. You need a rock box. If you like to cook pizza, you need a rock box. But I also experimented with chocolate chip cookies. And I believe I have perfected the chocolate chip cookie. I let the dough sit for more than 24 hours in the fridge. I also used a combination of shortening and butter. And I actually use glucose. Uh, not just sure. I use sugar. I use brown sugar. But I use some glucose. But the piece de resistance. Yep, that was a little French. Y'all, I chopped up candy bars. Chocolate candy bars. I didn't just use chocolate chips. I used candy. It was an incredible cookie. And because I used the combo of the shortening and the butter, and I put some cornstarch in as well, it stayed moist. You know how chocolate chip cookies, after 24 hours, they're just a crumbly mess. Not, no, no, not these. These stayed chewy. But the key I discovered is you got to give them 24 hours. So one of the things I did, uh, I read in a magazine that you should try, and it actually really worked is brown the butter. Put the butter in a skillet and get it brown. Get the milk solids brown and then pour it in. And because you've melted the butter, you got to chill the dough to to when the butter's all mixed in there. But the flour can soak it up. Man, y'all, these were good chocolate chip cookies. On Wednesday or Thursday, I can't remember what day I've got it set, uh, I will send the recipe out for these chocolate chip cookies. Now, I realize they're not everyday chocolate chip cookies. And they're not everyday chocolate chip cookies in large part because uh, you got to wait 24 hours. But what you can do is you can make a big batch and you can scoop them up, put them into balls, and then put them in a, a freezer Ziploc bag and just take them out of the freezer whenever you want them and bake them straight out of the freezer. You don't even have to thaw them out. And that makes incredibly good 
cookies. I'm, I'm just telling you. I'm telling you, text the word recipe to 33777. It is worth it. You don't have to use the glucose. You, you don't. Um, but uh, the thing with the glucose is it does make the center chewy longer and the outside's crispy. So the, the outside gets really crispy, but the inside is very chewy. And the glucose has a lot to do that. Or, or so I read in, in a magazine and followed it up with research and it appears to bear it out. So there, you can do that. All right, before we get out of here, one last thing for you. Some of you are going to go into Atlanta for a Hawks game. And I hope, if you will, that you will consider, you can go online and Google them, but there are a number of places now where you can get shirts that say Free Hong Kong or Stand With Hong Kong or something like that. And I hope you will consider going to the Hawks game and making a say, Y'all, I can't, this LeBron James stuff, is embarrassing. I cannot believe the man. Uh, and, and he is a smart guy. He is a smart guy. It's it's crazy watching progressives say, oh, well, LeBron's just ignorant. He doesn't know much about China. Uh, so you're saying LeBron James is ignorant. But, but listen to him on social stuff in this country, huh? Watching the NBA sell out to the Chicoms over their money has been horrifying. And watching progressives now try to come out and defend some of these guys. Uh, and the progressives are critical of China, but they're also trying to defend these NBA players who they love. That's really, really wrong. It, it is. Uh, we should all be united on this, and we should all be horrified by what the NBA is doing. So if you head into the city to watch a Hawks game, I highly encourage you guys, go out there, wear a protest t-shirt. And I will see you all tomorrow. <laughs>